have a slug of some coffee to raise the acetylcholine levels. And what is tonight's topic? Oh, yes. So we all have an uh, inner part of the mind which helps regulate our behavior. It's a kind of uh, mixture of feelings of guilt and shame from the emotional part of the brain and uh, thoughts comprised of what we should and shouldn't do. Freud called this superego, Jung, Imago. They're socializing elements that help us navigate through a world filled with other people. And certainly being a social being, which all human beings are, more or less, the customs, all of the actions, all the things we need to do to win acceptance in a world filled with judging, critical, difficult, each person with their own set of needs and expectations, it requires so much processing. So what creates this inner regulating set of rules and feelings that guide us, that tell us what's okay and what's not okay? For example, some of the laws that we follow are quite universal. Virtually every culture prohibits killing, stealing, but then there's very culturally arbitrary laws that are in some cultures and, in, and not in others. Chewing with your mouth open, belching, cursing near children, public intoxication, walking barefoot into restaurants, uh, how to express disagreement. They tend to these guidelines, customs, differ from one culture to another. And more importantly, in fact, they differ from one family to another family. The strongest influence on the development of the superego is, of course, in addition to the interactions we have with teachers and peers and culture, the bulk is certainly established in early caretaking relationships. Essentially, the human mind is not only plastic, which means it's moldable, but the bulk of that, a lot of that molding is happening in our first year of life. And then as we move on through these relationships and peers and institutions, we incorporate more and more and more regulating ideas. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. Some families pass on very healthy beliefs that govern us. Ideas like expressing kindness, gratitude, feelings of self-acceptance and love, feelings of deserving kindness and uh, the right to express one's feelings as paramount. And then other families can also <coughs> largely, to varying degrees, pass on really unhelpful regulating ideas that we will follow. For instance, some of us are taught not to ask for help, to be completely self-sufficient, to abandon our needs uh, in relationships. And then, of course, there's the misogynist beliefs, the racist beliefs that are passed down. We can, in other words, wind up as adults with a set of useful and harmful beliefs. And the problem is, of course, we are prone to believe and to take seriously some of the harmful beliefs because it's very difficult for a child to know what is actually right or what is actually skillful from what is not. They just go from what is taught in their 
family systems and cultures. So if their cultures are embedded with bigotry or power dynamics, then they'll believe that. So the Buddha said that ideas turn into beliefs, and the more rigidly we cling to beliefs, the more we are likely to get into conflict with other people who have differing beliefs. Sounds really complex and difficult to understand? I think not. Pretty clear. Buddha even said in the Water Snake Sutta, people who study the Dharma to attack other people and their beliefs have completely got it wrong. Well, that's my interpretation of the Pali. He actually says, uh, people who study the Dharma to attack other paths or to defend their path don't understand the reason to study the Dharma. I could, of course, just give this talk on how important it is to let go of, investigate, not believe, to challenge one's, our own beliefs and to constantly investigate uh, from the angle of just how much conflict and interpersonal suffering it causes to be rigid. But I'm actually going to talk about it from the internal perspective of how much harm we do to ourselves when we believe in the deepest message of the superego, which is what Freud called the ideal ego, the perfect me. There is somewhere out there a platonic ideal way I should be and that I'm falling short of it. I'm not good enough. I should be better. And very many people organize themselves around this idea that there's a, a perfect right way to be in life and that we're falling short of it. We're incomplete. We're flawed. We're failures. There's something bad about us. There's something that needs to be changed on a wholesale level. And I would propose that one of the core messages that we can find in the Dhamma is the idea that if we want to liberate ourselves from the tyranny of the inner critic, the inner tyrant that tells us that we're always doing it wrong, we have to start in our practice, in the way not only we meditate, but in the way we relate to our internal experience and the way we relate to spiritual ideas. The Buddha in the Samaditi Sutta said that there are four ways we cause suffering by uh, th through attaching to or rigidly believing in ideas. The four types of ways are believing in uh, our ideas about where to find happiness. We generally cling to short-term pleasures. We have very strong beliefs. What is the right spiritual practice? People can become dogmatic and fundamentalists. We can be very dogmatic in our views and opinions about the way the world should be. And, of course, we can have very rigid beliefs about who we are, what we're capable of, the nature of our identity. So I'm going to leave the last one for another day. I've certainly given enough talks on the Buddha's ideas that it's important to let go of what he called samaditi, the strict beliefs about who we are what kind of person I am, the self-pathologizing views that limit us and essentially constrain us. And instead I'm going to talk about really the middle two, which is strict beliefs in the way that practice should be and um, strict belief in um, our views and opinions. So this teaching is called the Kalamas. The Buddha was passing through Kesaputta, which was a city of the Kalamas, and the Kalamas came up to the Buddha, and they said, 
Okay, so you're just another one of those Buddha, those teachers. Because at the time of the Buddha, 2,500 years ago, there were literally uh, an explosion of uh, different spiritual practices. There was none shorter than, in one list the Buddha gives, there's literally dozens and dozens of popular spiritual beliefs in his times. Everything from Brahmins and Jains to... Uh, Hindu practices and yogic practices and whatnot. So there's a lot of people teaching a lot of things. And the Kalamas come up to the Buddha and they go, there's so many teachers who pass through here. Each one glorifies their teachings and disparages the teachings of the others. Sound familiar? It's called the world we live in. How do we choose? And the Buddha responds in a way that I find absolutely still to this day enthralling. He doesn't give the answer that you might expect a spiritual teacher to give. He says, well, of course you are uncertain. Of course you have doubts. And when you do have doubts, don't go by what people claim to be true. Don't go by traditions. Don't go by scriptures. Don't go by logical conjecture. Don't go by analogies. Don't even go by what your teacher or a teacher says is true. When you see for yourself that a certain behavior causes harm to yourself or others and is blameworthy, put it aside. So this is known as the Buddha's Charter for Free Inquiry. And basically what he's saying is that under no circumstances have your spiritual practice be handed to you or believed or unquestioned or something that you continually go at, go by without investigating. Because that's what leads to all of the fundamentalism and all of the conflict and all of even the suffering that we feel inside. Because there's, if there's one thing that I've found is that people come to spiritual practice trying to get some peace from that inner voice in their mind very often that tells us there's something wrong with us, we've done it wrong, we've screwed up our lives, There's uh, we're less than. And then what we do is we find at first a practice that, uh, any spiritual practice that you find, where it offers some peace and some self-acceptance and some form of... of uh, kindness, but then we allow that inner self-regulating factor to once again become over-ambitious and over-controlling and to tell us once again, you're doing it wrong. You're meditating wrong. You're doing your practice wrong. You should be doing something else. You should be more peaceful. A practice fueled by this sense of I'm doing it wrong. I should be perfect. I shouldn't be feeling this way. I shouldn't be having this experience. Here's another sutta I really like. The Buddha says, suppose someone was walking on a path and that path led to an expanse of water and the shore thereon is really dangerous while the further shore is safe. But there's no boat or bridge to cross the water. So they gather twigs, branches, leaves, and they built a makeshift raft which they used to cross the water. Now once they've crossed, would it be wise for this person to think, wow, that raft was really useful. I should carry around it around with me wherever I go. 
now that I'm on dry, dry land, I should still carry it in case I need it another time. And he says, is that smart? And all the people around him go, no. And then the Buddha says, just so, when a, a wise person knows that when a tool has served its purpose, they put it aside without carrying it around. This is the way to relate to the teachings of the Dharma. To use it when they're useful and then put them down. Not to carry them around. Not to use them to beat yourself up. Not to use them to tell you that you're, you should be having different emotions or different experience. Not to use it as a, uh, essentially a tool to beat yourself up with. The other wonderful story that uh, Buddhist teachers have to tell, you wouldn't be a Buddhist teacher if you didn't tell the stories, the one about that. It's apocryphal, it didn't actually happen in any of the suttas, but it's now become as if it did happen. The Buddha apparently walking with a young novice monk who he's just explained the rules about monks should not touch uh, women and women should not touch uh, women nuns should not touch men so he's telling the monk this and then the, they pass by a woman who's in a current trying to cross and she's being swept around the Buddha jumps in and helps her across and then he continues walking on with a young monk and about a half an hour later the monk says well didn't you just break the rule that he told me about and the Buddha says well, I put, that, I put her down a half an hour ago, but you're still carrying that around. That's what attachment is. We carry around rules in our mind that are inhumane or not meant for the circumstances that we're in or overly uh, prescribed without any sense of compassion. And we use these rules to judge ourselves and condemn ourselves as flawed. And that's not a way to know when we need to change or need to put more effort into a practice. Relying on the inner critic, the superego, as uh, the core factor of, of deciding when you need to put a little bit more effort into your meditation is going to lead you not to a better practice, but just to empowering that voice of your not good enough. During many of our financial struggles, the suffering is not caused by the actual lack of money, but, but, but the belief that we should have it all figured out, that we should be doing life differently. So, letting go of the idea that there's some perfect way to practice or that there is, in fact, any right path out there is really liberating. There is no right path. I do not have the right path. When we go to the questions and you might ask a question about practice, when I give an answer, it is not the right Buddhist answer. It is the way I practice Buddhism. No better or no worse than any other teacher or any other practitioner who's been doing it for a while. Their lives, their experiences, their circumstances are different, and they will need different practices. And so too will you need different practices than I. So there is no correct right practice. 
there are guidelines to what we can acceptably call a spiritual practice and outer limits. The Buddha said those are the precepts. If we're killing, stealing, causing harm through sex, intoxication, or through speech, then we're certainly not doing a spiritual practice. So we can have a sense of what's not helpful, but that doesn't mean we should carry around an idea that there is an ideal, correct, right, perfect practice that we are somehow falling short of. Your practice is right now what is you've been doing, whatever it is, and to the degree that you need any feedback, it's simply the amount of suffering in your life. How much anxiety or fear or obsessive thought do you have? When you notice that your mind becomes agitated, there's no need to think that you've done anything wrong. It's simply like uh, a fee, like the thermostat in a house when the temperature dips, the thermostat kicks in the heat and the heat raises up. It's not like the heating system or the thermostat was doing it wrong. Anxiety is your mind's way of telling you that painful emotions are surfacing or that there's a conflict between your left hemispheric ideas and your right hemispheric emotional concerns. And that doesn't mean that up until that moment you've done anything wrong or that you're flawed or that you're bad. Far from it. It's simply a message that now we have to adjust to a new practice and then a few days later we'll have to adjust to an even another practice. And it's an ongoing set of adjustments. For example, what I regularly uh, adjust in my practice is one, which teachers and thinkers do I listen to? For a long time, I listened to Ajahn Jeff, who was a teacher for a long time. Then I listened to Ajahn Brahm and Ajahn Amaro. Now I listen to Ajahn Suchito. I, uh, Ajahn Sundaro, she's wonderful. I change it up because... Some teachers help me uh, work in understanding the way I relate to thoughts or goals or intentions. Another practice I'm constantly adjusting is how do I relate to the idea of right speech? The Buddha has an, he says, right, in right speech, we don't practice too much idle chatter. <laughs> Good luck. I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> If you know what idle chatters is and can define it from useful speech, that's great. I am constantly working on that one. And, you know, essentially I've come to the idea that it's speaking out of nervousness rather than, you know, needing to fill up the silence rather than speaking with any sense of uh, wanting to connect or share an idea with other people. But that's a constantly shifting I don't have a definition for it. I don't have a definition for what constitutes right livelihood. When I started as a teacher 11 years ago, I was working as an art director and I worked in design firms and ad agencies and that was okay with me. And then a few years later, that was definitely not okay with me. My sense of what was I could tolerate, what was uh, a sense of right livelihood changed and shift, and today it's changed and shift. And it continues to change and shift, and I wasn't wrong. 
11 years ago when I was capable of working in marketing, nor am I wrong today. It's just a shifting sense of what I'm capable of. There's no absolute to it. Adding the sense that there's an absolute simply creates anxiety of doing it wrong. And it creates a sense of rigidity and dogmatism. I constantly change the duration of my practice and when each day I sit. And I constantly change how much concentration versus how much mindfulness. And very frankly, in the... The bulk of my work, which involves mentoring one-on-one, I find that very often the tools that I provide to people change as well. So, there are so many other things that are constantly shifting in my practice. And for me, the simple guideline is just noting when do I feel some sense of a relief from agitation or stress. And in which case, I continue on with what I'm doing. And then when there's a picking up or a, uh, a growth of stress and anxiety, then I start playing around and experimenting and trying different things and listening to different teachers and trying different tools. And there's never a sense, though, that there's this perfect version out there that I have to aspire to. That's an unnecessary add-on that will just cause needless sense of doing it wrong. So when you make mistakes, you don't have to sit around beating yourself up or tell yourself that you've done it wrong. Just change what you're doing.